welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Toby Kent, and with me is Matthew Sortino. Normally, I don't get to do the intro, but Matt's feeling a bit under the weather today, so he's indulged me. And before we go any further, and while Matt's still not speaking, uh, I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the lands of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, and Matt and I'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging, and of course, anyone who may be listening. Thank you, Toby. Yes, I am under the weather at the moment, so... You know, listeners will be be happy to hear that I'm not going to be uh, filling their ears with, you know, my wonderings. I'm not sure. I mean, could could our listeners ever be happy without you being truly well met? Yeah, true, true. No, just just under the weather, but you know, these things happen, don't they? Apparently, it's nice to be able to to be in an environment not to diminish the ongoing COVID threat, but uh, at least to be living in a time when. It doesn't immediately, sickness doesn't immediately mean panic of COVID and complete social isolation. That's right. So I've had a few rats, but uh, clear, all clear. Great. It's just a regular sickness. Before we begin, I want to just introduce our guest, Alex Fleck, or actually Alexandre Fleck Suarez Brandel. I hope I pronounced that correctly, Uh, but he prefers Alex Fleck while he's here in Australia due to the lack of Portuguese speakers that he would interact with, I'm I'm guessing. Though there's a lot of news at the moment, Toby, sorry to sidetrack from Alex, about uh, pronunciation of surnames and people's names and how people should just learn to say people's names correctly. I think Um, it's getting a lot better. I mean, you still call me Sortino instead of Sortino, so... uh... Well, that's because I'm influenced by Siri, not because I don't know how it should be said. (laughs) Yeah, what, what, it's interesting. We saw it in British sports coverage when I was kind of growing up and then moving into adulthood. And yeah, basically, it was it was almost a mark of honour, I think, in the British psyche to not make an effort to pronounce things correctly. And I, and I think probably with the internationalisation of sport. And as more and more, um, particularly with the British Premier League for the soccer, as more and more international players came in, suddenly it was seen as appropriate to make an effort. And I, and I think probably the, we're seeing that here as we become differently multicultural. Of course, since settlement, Australia has always been multicultural, but with that sort of very heavy Anglo or Anglo-Celtic overhang and legacy, um, and, I, and I think we are becoming genuinely uh, multicultural now. I will continue with uh, uh, the bio. Yes, so Alex Fleck is pursuing a PhD at the University of New South Wales, Sydney. His research is on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook and how they've reshaped social movement and also about legal change. A lot of our uh, initial discussion is about this topic and about what that looks like on the ground and in the digital space. Um, and then we move along to Brazilian politics. But this was recorded a while ago now. This is recorded just after the uh, Brazilian elections. And Lula obviously won that election. But since then, uh, Bolsonaro and supporters have rejected the results and in a similar fashion to the January 6th riots, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, in Washington, D.C., the Bolsonaro supporters also um, stormed offices and blocked the streets and there was violence, uh, serious violence and a threat to democracy as we know it in Brazil. So it's 
something that we're seeing more and more and is quite dangerous. But what I love about what Alex does is, I mean, we can look up the news and see what happened yesterday, the day before we're hearing about it, but we don't know the context of why and what's actually happening on the ground. And I think Alex gives us a really good background as to how fragile and special democracy is and in, in, in Brazil and the world over and also how um, it can be manipulated by various forces. And one of those forces that can manipulate is um, not just social media, but the fact that there's only a limited amount of media available to the general public and how that can sway people. And I guess we've got a similar monopoly in Australia with the Murdoch Press and the States with it's not quite a monopoly, but very divided news organisations. So maybe information and free, fair, democratically uh, sourced um, information is is what a good democracy needs. Does that make sense, Toby? Do you think that that's a case or are we kidding ourselves to think that people are going to look at lots of different sources from multiple points of view to make a decision? So I, I think what's fundamentally different, I mean, I, I think you know, people aligned certainly over the last century or so, you know, they would be a Morning Herald reader or they'd be an Australian reader, whatever it may have been. And you know, in the UK, it was the Times. Oh, no, I'm a Guardian reader. And so I don't think people have ever, to my knowledge, I mean, as a, as a, as a wide generalization, sourced their news from multiple sources. So we probably actually, in some ways, um, my instinct would be maybe sourcing the news from more places than ever before with the thanks to digital facilities. But very often, those sources will be self-reinforcing or mutually reinforcing. I think the fundamental change is that there is even less interest in balance uh, in the reporting of the mainstream news sources. They, they have become even more politicized. And, and, and of course, in other ways, and simultaneously declined in their influence because of the rise of uh, online platforms. It's interesting, uh, and I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent to save your voice. For the sake of your voice, Matt, I will witter on. But I'm reading a book at the moment called In the Shadow of the Sword by Tom Holland. Tom Holland's a British historian rather than the Spider-Man actor. And... This particular book uh, focuses on the emergence of Christianity, Islam, or other way around, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam uh, in what we now call the Middle East. And what that does is to show how profoundly the emergence of those three religions were tied to essentially a, a political environment and, and conflict. Um, but also the mobility and thus influence of people across the European and, and Middle Eastern regions to to encourage the you know the spread and take up of, of these at that time new religions, and I think there's quite a lot of similarities between what Alex talks about what we're discussing in terms of how people and their views are shaped by the ability to communicate by the control of politics 
and, and that in the with the passage of time things have become normalized and and made kind of uniform and one, one of the interesting things so i didn't realize that in the context of christianity and it was particularly the roman emperor constantine who saw a real value in moving away from having lots of different gods and that in a sense were uncontrollable to saying there is only one god and i am the voice piece of that god which gave incredible political power and and leverage and so on but also there were so many different bubbling and emerging factions going on around this time i think it's around the 480s or so uh, ad common era as we now call it so actually he pulled together all uh, a meeting of many of these different factions and cardinals and bishops as they were even called back then uh and uh, in, in a place called nicaea they agreed what the kind of common view of of christianity should be and that's where the concept of the holy trinity uh was born because the view was that if christ was kind of all powerful and had come to save humanity then he couldn't be subordinate to god and so they had to find a way of making christ equal to god although being his son and then they sort of said well how do we do it was because of the spirit and so it puts a historical lens over all of this but the thread back to alex and social media is this concept of communications and power and how we take and how that power can seize on something that is very distributed uh and bottom up just like social media and the internet had sort of started out and as you were talking about and then as alex has how that can be co-opted or seized by more established and traditional authorities and turning that to their interest so i think while the social media platform and dimensions of this are profoundly new which is why it's so important and interesting that people like alex are studying it in other ways the manipulation the grabbing of power the grabbing of the influence through communications is very very ancient yeah and it seems to be the case on so many levels including like cryptocurrency people say it's the the, the way to democratize the economy or to stop these centralized banks controlling things yet it ends up being bought out by the the richest people and the and the criminal organizations are manipulated by those in in many ways yeah i just did my uh cyber training uh, at work the other day and i was absolutely shocked uh, to discover that people have this knowledge but don't appear to be able to stop it so one of the organizations they're turning talking about is a cyber crime company mainly generating revenue through cryptocurrency well I'm sorry they get paid in crypto uh, they generate the money paid in crypto through extortion and 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 cheating but it's a 2 billion dollar turnover company and it employs 3 and 1/2000 people you know and they have proper you know recruitment departments and it's just crazy and yet this is it's so visible in some ways and seems uh people can't stop it but yeah that was just sorry that was just something that i just stumbled across the other day and and your comment about 
crypto being kind of dominated by either those who are very rich or indeed just criminal, or in this context, criminal and rich. Uh, and and yeah, far from, well, certainly not, it doesn't, I, I think when people talk about democratizing, it tends to have, in certainly in the minds of many of us, uh, uh, an inherently benign kind of positive feel to it. But yeah, um, maybe not in, in, in terms of how it plays out. Yeah, there are other systems at play, not just people power or, you know, one vote for all. It's actually money and power and guns. I mean, revolutions start with the workers or the people saying, we want a new way of living, this is unfair, and then the next thing you know, you've got uh, more violent, <laughs> sometimes more more tyrannical group that end up taking control and power. Yeah. Also, on that book, I'm going to put that up in the show notes, Toby, uh, in the, can you? In the Shadow of the Sword in by the Tom the Sword. Holland. Tom Holland. And also a couple of recommendations that it reminded me of were was Julian by Gore Vidal, which is, a, I guess, a historical fiction about the Emperor Julian who wants to believe in the old gods or the, the Greek sort of gods, but, the, but Christianity has arrived in, in Rome. And then also a Yale University lecture series, which is free to access. Uh, unlike the university. Unlike the university, that's right. Uh, <laughs> oh, sorry, I talked over there, Matt. No, no. So that's a really great lecture series no, and What's well. the course again? A Journey Through Western Christianity. What's, that, what's the lecture series? A Journey Through Western Christianity from Persecuted Faith to Global Religion 200. CE to 1650 CE, which is really interesting as well to go into a deep dive into these topics. I'm, I'm thinking they're three options for people, but um, yeah, really interesting space to to look back. I mean, I, I'm a history teacher and love going back to the origins of of why something exists and how it became what it became. Um, and nothing's as simple as it seems. I'm listening to a lecture series on the history of Ukraine at the moment, and it is extraordinarily uh, convoluted and not as simple as many want to see. But, yeah, it's, it's by Tim Snyder, and it's another um, lecture series and in podcast or YouTube form. So look up Timothy Snyder, who I've mentioned before a few times. Yeah, you, yeah, you have. Uh, I, I think he's a big fan of our podcast. We should get him, we should get him on. Yeah, he better reciprocate. I've... I've you know, spruiked him enough, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, Toby, we could chat all day, but Alex Fleck is waiting in the uh, digital in space. The, in the green room? Yeah, in the green room. <laughs> so uh, thank you, Toby. Anything you'd like to say before we head off as host? Thank you very much for, for listening, everyone. Here is Alex Fleck. Alex, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and, uh, I guess, academic and, and professional life? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm on the latter stages of my PhD. I'm a PhD candidate at UNSW here in Sydney. Uh, I'm originally from Brazil, but I moved here to, to pursue my PhD. My original sort of area is both sociology and law. And my um, my research here is on uh, social media and legal change, and looking at how 
social media changes the panorama of how so- social movements sort of, you know, were affected by mainly Twitter, Facebook, all these different platforms that have come up. That has changed the landscape in which they are working with, uh, as opposed to, you know, the streets. Now it's a bit of a, you know, a digital and the streets kind of situation. So that's my sort of main area of, of research. Obviously, being from Brazil and having, you know, I've been living here in Australia for the last four years. I have the the habit of waking up and, and looking at the news and, and, and seeing what has happened um, abroad and what has happened sort of in, in my home country. And, you know, I took a keen, uh, a keen interest in looking at uh, what was going on during the, the Brazilian elections, obviously, because that interacts with, you know, kind of my actual area of expertise, which is, which is social media. Um, what led you in, in that direction, Alec? It's quite, I think it, it, interla- it sort of interlaps with, with uh, the recent political history of, of Brazil, uh, if you will. I was at the time, so I graduated in, in law. I'm going to get the, the year wrong now. But after graduating law, I went to do a, um, a master's degree in the Onyati Institute for the Sociology of Law. And while I was sort of deciding what my research was going to be, that was exactly the year, it was 2016 when I was doing my master's, was when Trump won the US election. So that was, obviously, there's research before that, but that was sort of the the big sort of mainstream concern with social media, what social media was doing to society, especially in that political vein. So that was sort of the global context. You know, we were t- starting to talk about Facebook and Twitter, the influence in politics. So that was the first sort of stage. And at the same time, we had just uh, gone through the ousting, the sort of soft coup against Dilma Rousseff, then president of Brazil. So, and that was also in the context of new media, social media, it was still an emerging trend in Brazil, but it, it sort of surpassed the influence of traditional media quite quite significantly. So that was kind of what, what made me curious first was the US election. And that became the topic of my master's research, was how the, the debate on social media sort of influenced the actual proceedings of uh, the impeachment against uh, Dilma Rousseff and that that whole, whole ordeal. So that was my thesis, and that led me to to my PhD, which now it doesn't actually talk about Brazil. I'm actually doing a case study that's based on the US, but the sort of trend of looking at how social media is affecting that debate and is affecting those trends is kind of the, the line that goes through everything. I'd love to touch on a little bit more about Brazilian politics and the events that you were talking about then referring to there in a moment. Before we do, you talked about the remo- or the change from protest or activism or, or politics being on the streets and then moving to the online space. Um, what's your experience in, in this field personally? I know you've uh, had a little bit of time with on the streets <laughs> in a way and and. What have you noticed as the main change like in, in your life with that, um, you know, grassroots movements being on the ground and then versus grassroots movements being online? Yeah, so I think both from my personal experience and sort of from a, from a theoretical standpoint, even though I, I kind of misspoke at first, but there's a, there's a big debate um, if there was an actual sort of, if there is a difference between online and offline, if they're two separate worlds. 
both theoretically and in my personal experience, I think that the, the truth is that they both interact. So I, I, I told you in my bio, and it's a big part of my life, I met my partner during we were staging a protest. We were occupying the law school we studied at the time. That's how I, I met my partner, but and I, and I was involved in social movements from a from a you know since since law school. But the the trend in, in what has happened is not necessarily that people are not in the streets anymore, but people stage things on the streets and also produce content online. So they use digital media to kind of you know. Uh, try to reach more people, but they also stage things, you know, on the streets. And you can, you know, you can look at Black Lives Matter. You can look at a bunch of different things, not only on the left, but also on on the far right as well. So if you look at the the sort of the misinformation uh, about vaccination, anti-vaccination uh, protests, and so on, that was both sort of its own online subculture, and there were, you know, specific Sort of digital influences that made a they've made a career really um, on promoting you know ideas about you know their ideas about or, or their critiques about vaccination and so on. But that also and also that produced street protests and on the street protests themselves, they're also filming themselves. So I think what we need to when we talk about sort of digital activism, the first thing that you need to understand is. That it's not, you know, one thing is offline and the other thing is online. Both kinds of activism sort of interlap. They are related to each other. And one affects the other as well. One of the trends that I found in my my research from my thesis is how the way that Twitter is sort of organized, the way it shapes, it, it both organizes information, but it also that organization shapes the way that activists work, how they sort of try to spread their own ideas is affected by the way that, you know, these Silicon Valley companies decided to, you know, create their own platforms. So it's not just about an instrument. You know the saying, if, if, if you're a hammer or if your hand is a hammer, everything's a nail. It's kind of like that. So if Twitter becomes your most prominent tool of digital activism, then your even on the streets activism is going to be shaped by the 280 characters from Twitter or trying to promote specific hashtags. You know, the idea that we would call a movement, you know, whether it's Me Too, whether it's Black Lives Matter, the idea that you would name your own social movement after a hashtag only becomes possible because the idea of a hashtag has become sort of a part of daily life and a part of activism in itself. And that was significantly shaped by the way that, for instance, Twitter establishes their trending topics. Uh, so if you think now about that, you see the importance, even if, you know, life is, you know, Twitter is in real life or Facebook is in real life. Well, yes, but it shapes real life. It does have an impact. Uh, and that's perhaps one of the main results that I've, that I've found in my research. Yeah, and it's really interesting, Alex. We've um, had a few conversations recently, both between Matt and me and also with guests, Around some of the negative effects of social media we've been talking about, we, we had a longish conversation about Johan Hari's book, Stolen Focus, which goes well beyond social media, but very much starts with that kind of the addictive social media 
algorithms and so on. But on the flip side, we uh, are speaking with a, a woman called Sue Barrett who's done some great things around Women's March for Justice here in Australia and then played a really important role uh, in getting one of the independent uh, MPs, Zoe Daniel, get elected in the last federal election. And she ascribes tremendous positive links to social media, Twitter in particular, but also uh, spoke about a couple of quite positive things she got from Facebook. So a really overly simplistic question, but just to get us going, get a bit of debate going between the three of us maybe, social media, positive, negative, where do we sit? I mean, that's a great question. That's a great question specifically because even in my my own writing, my own life, I've, I'm actually finishing my last touches of the literature review. And this question isn't just coming f- from you, but this is sort of the age-old question in this area. And great part of the literature is sort of in this fierce debate, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? My, my main standpoint is, well, it depends. It has the potential to be great. Currently, we see a lot of trends that it has been a force for for bad. And I'll tell you why. And this is one of my my main arguments. Social media, when it it started, and if you read a lot about literature on, they speak about Silicon Valley ideology and so on. If anyone's watched the social network uh, movie, uh, Mark Zuckerberg has has one of the um, his famous lines is you know his, his sort of saying is uh, move fast and break things. And Facebook at the very start was about connecting people in universities, right? So it started being this very profile centric. Everything was about sort of exposing yourself, your personality, your image, and it almost became as a quasi-dating site, so also your relationship status. That was the first sort of step of social media. Now, after a while, both Facebook and Twitter, if you look at Twitter at the very beginning, you can see that it started as a microblog. And, you know, it was sort of almost this ongoing joke where people would say what they were doing. You know, the joke, uh, oh, you know, I'm going to the toilet, I'm back from the toilet, and so on. So it started really about being the self, very profile-centric. Now, with time, this moved into what we call a newsfeed or data-centric platform. So it started about exchanging ideas. Now, the issue with that was along with that sort of let's exchange ideas, it, it was fundamentally based on the idea that it would democratize information which is sort of the the ideology, if you will, of Web 2.0 or Web 3.0, which is, well, first we had these major players, this traditional media that went online, and they would be the ones that produced information. Now we are democratizing this process. It's not just these major players that are producing content. Everyone, every user, every node, if you want to speak the language of of, of network sociology, every node has power to produce content. What that kind of first view either didn't realize or kind of underestimated was that social media was also creating new hierarchies. So it wasn't that it was just sort of subverting the traditional media order but it was creating a new one. 
And you see that every day. So for instance, you see the number of followers is directly related to communicative power. This is the main lesson that sort of Manuel Castells, the, the, um, the Spanish sociologist, uh, uh, brought up, which is, look, activists have this immense power. They can use that large megaphone, but other types of power, economic business-related power can also be translated into social media, whether this is by follower count, which is sort of the main way that sort of communicative hierarchies is done in, in, in Twitter, but it's also about advertising as well. And it's directly sort of related to these platforms' business model to keep those hierarchies in place. Because they sell advertising, they still are directly sort of connected to the idea of curtailing the information that, you know, people can exchange and people can get access to. So that's sort of the first part. We haven't even gotten to sort of the idea of misinformation and so on, because we can we can talk a little bit about uh, about that later. But rather than kind of overtaking and kind of stopping all communicative hierarchies and making it a level playing field, they just created a new playing field. There's still those inequalities. They're just organized in a different way. And this is sort of a bit of my effort. What I'm looking at is how are these hierarchies, like, look, how do they look? What are they? And what challenges and what kind of who does that benefit and who does that put sort of in check? And so, and it's part of the problem. I remember when Obama was elected. You know, it was, and this is amazing. We've got this young president, and he's activated Facebook, and this is the future. And there was obviously a, a certain anticipated outcome from a certain part of the political demos, the the people who uh, thought it was going to be used for, again, to your point, uh, to democratize, and that democracy was probably inherently, for want of a better word, progressive. But actually, then people went. Oh no, we could use this the other way. Yeah, and and the the, the other way is Trump in a way, isn't it? Like the what Trump was able to do on um, Bolsonaro, on Bolsonaro, uh, and and others on on Twitter because the social social media was used for the Arab Spring, wasn't it? Is that is that right as well? So there was all these positives where you could democratize uh, information, but also voice. You could have a voice where you were voiceless in the past, and Iran is a place maybe right now that he's experiencing that, a lot coming out on social media. But then there's also this addiction to destroy the establishment, this so-called media elite or the the, the fake news giants. And, and then the right has almost taken it up as this idea that, no, there is no such thing as truth or no such thing as fact even. It's now whatever, whatever we can say online and, and get away with or that suits our ideology seems to be the norm. So that's the other competing area between the the good and the bad that maybe you can have a go at unpacking for us, Alex. No, yeah, absolutely. I think for starters, um, especially in the Arab Spring, I think this this point can, can be better sort of elaborated on by different people, but I believe Zeynep Tufeki, um, she has a, a great book on the the foreign press had had a big role in sort of this kind of colonial narrative uh, in crediting the sort of American Silicon Valley companies with, well, how they were, you know, incredibly helpful and amazing in the Arab Spring and so on. 
and even the notion of an Arab Spring is is a is a bit is a bit strange because obviously there were completely different movements in different places. But obviously, you know, it, it was the name that stuck, right? And you know, uh, and we refer to it uh, as it is. But I think she she has a she has a very good description in her book. I'm I'm going to butcher the name because I don't remember where she she shows that. Well, look, yes, there was some communication that was going on online on Twitter. But first of all, this was more about speaking what was happening there to to the outside and kind of propagating this message to the outside at first. Um, There was this concerted effort by activists using these platforms to do that, but not specifically to, you know, to organize the protests themselves. It It was a bit, you know, slightly different. But also one of the most important things, and we can look about now in Iran, or we can look at other other movements in in um, in Sri Lanka um, a couple of years ago, and in India as well, where governments can use social media as well to their own advantage. Whether it is because these platforms generate so much data on activists that can be you know harnessed by state repression and to to go after these activists uh, to investigate, but also to disseminate disinformation about the protests themselves. One of the sort of most interesting things, just to give an example of of what can be done, is, for instance, uh, I believe it was during the Syrian protests that um, I believe one of the main uh, hashtags at the very uh, beginning of, of, of the protests were hashtag Syria. So that was used to spread, that particular hashtag was used to spread, you know, awareness about what was going on. So what a government agency did was they started using the exact same hashtag. What they did was they hijacked the hashtag. So they used a lot of automated accounts and they started using that exact same hashtag, but as a, with sort of quasi-tourist images. So they sort of hijacked and turned that hashtag into a sort of visit Syria with these kind of, you know, oh, you know, Damascus is beautiful this time of year or whatever, with kind of messages that had nothing to do with with the actual initial protest. Um, So there are certain, you know, resources that can can be done. It it can also be used to harass personally, trolling and so on, activists. To, To sum it up, and my main argument is... Still, the the main hierarchy that is that is put forth is that activists, as a rule of thumb, are one amateurs and they are volunteers. Now, as a rule of thumb, repression in general or anti-protest or anti-democratic forces tend to be professionalized. Now. The reason why I'm making this distinction is quite important because when you when you see all the type of harassment, you know, and, and just look at the, the the Me Too protests, the All Black Lives Matter, you can look at not only persecution but online harassment, trolling, doxing, and so on. Volunteer activists are much more susceptible to this kind of pressure and these kind of negative acts online than professionals. If you are a an anonymous professional behind a computer controlling 20 different accounts, you know, just doing counter narrative promoting counter narratives on Twitter, you know, trolling against you is not going to affect your morale. 
because you're not really personally invested into that. It's your job. You know, it's your day job. Whereas if you're an activist, then you're subjected to persecution, doxing, people spreading misinformation about you, attacking you personally, your own well-being and even your online reputation, a lot of people sort of rely on that to get their message out. Whereas the sort of professional networks that are acting against these people, they're not susceptible to the same kind of campaigns. Uh, and, and just to go micro for a second, excuse my ignorance, what is doxing? Do you know doxing? I know trolling. I know doxing. Oh, you do. I want Alex to respond doxing. No, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. So doxing is, uh, or to dox, is to identify someone's someone that appeared to be anonymous or were, was anonymous online, identifying them by their name or, you know, any other personal information, their address, mm-hmm. where they work, yeah, where, right. where they live and so on. So that's that's the, the behavior. So you get that personal information from that and you and you put it out there. Pretty okay. violent at times, like with mm-hmm. people, you know, sending SWAT teams to people's homes and... Yep. And, um, uh, you know, graffiti, firebombing or graffiti or, you know, just following people, like it, it can turn really nasty as well, this doxing, yeah. Well, yeah, we, we should probably be cautious when, when speaking about this, but we've just had a a, a, a recent event in, in, in Australia, in Sydney, mm-hmm. which apparently seems to be a case where a, where a prominent YouTuber may have been a victim John Shanks might might have been a victim of of a similar or quasi sort of doxing situation where he may have been attacked for his sort of online persona. Uh, we're not exactly you know sure if it was precisely doxing who did it or so on, but you know to the best of our knowledge that that you know may may have been the case. Yeah, online. I mean, there's there's talk. We're not yeah. accusing anyone or saying anything. It's it's what's been reported, which is that. Friendly Geordies, Jordan Shanks, yeah, due to his sort of leftist activism in a way, um, at least, you know, from parts of, the, of society have been after him for a very long time and and two arson attacks or potential arson attacks have been, that's the accusation, led to him actually leaving uh, or stopping his uh, online presence for, for now. Um, yep. That's what it can lead to, I guess, doxing. Maybe we'll move into the other reason we wanted to have a discussion with you, Alex, which is that the Brazilian election occurred recently and and by the time this comes out it will probably be a couple of months back. Um, But can you give us a picture about Brazilian politics in general and a little bit about how Bolsonaro, you know, came to power and what what he did in, in power? Yeah, a lot of our audience may not really know much except that there was an election Bolsonaro, you know, there's some negative press sometimes about him, but the election was close. What, what's going on there? Can you give a bit of a picture of, yeah, what you know about the situation and um, some of the, the the more negative aspects of Bolsonaro's? Yeah, and I think it's really two elections, right, because we've had the recent one, which by the time of release will be uh, two months ago, but also I think the role of social media in his initial election uh, when he did win, was also quite significant, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we could spend three hours talking about this, uh, but let me let me go back to 2018, which was when when Bolsonaro was was elected. Well, first for for the Australian audience, 
Brazil has a presidential system quite similar to the Washington, what we call Washington system, quite quite similar to the US presidential system with two two chambers of Congress, uh, a Senate and a, and a lower house and a and a Supreme Court. The those are the you know three branches of government. With the exception that, unlike the U.S., where they have a um, electoral college, the the president is elected by a popular vote. So, Bolsonaro ran in 2018. He was at the time what you'd call a backbencher, right? He was from a smaller party. He he actually had been in three or four different parties. Brazil has a sort of a list uh, of electing their lower house, a bit like you have in the um, Australian Senate. So we elect, instead of, as opposed to having electorates or districts, and he was sort of one of these sort of deputies, one of these, we call them deputies, but one of these sort of members of parliament, member of the lower house, that was elected sort of kind of in in the middle of his party line. He was, up until then, the sort of the major representative of the Brazilian military. He had been an army captain, uh, Brazil has had a history of a military dictatorship in 64. Then President uh, João Goulart was removed from power. This coup led to more than two decades of military rule. This was the result of a, the support of the U.S. government at the time and used for U.S. foreign relations, embassies and so on. And then what is perhaps one of the greatest crimes during the Brazilian military dictatorship, Brazil was instrumental in South America in orchestrating or helping out or giving uh, military support to coups in other countries, especially you know, known in Argentina and Chile. Now, this is the sort of political backdrop that Bolsonaro is from. He was in the military at the time. He went all the way up to, he went, only went up to army captain. He went into the reserves. And after going into reserves, he ran for Congress after democratization. Uh, he ran for Congress and he was elected multiple times. And he, up until, you know, 2016 or 2017, he was the sort of backbencher. No one really listened to it. He used to go in a lot of kind of talk shows on on TV. He was known for this kind of extreme anti-gay, anti-LGBT rhetoric, kind of very authoritarian-esque rhetoric. He was kind of laughing stock or a bit of a talking point. You'd call him up to, to a talk show to kind of laugh at him or to stir up a crowd or stir up an audience. So this is sort of the history of of Bolsonaro. This is up until 2016, where he was one of the people who was instrumental, uh, at least as a a public figure, not in Congress, because, again, he never had that much power in Congress, but he was sort of a public figure in the coup against Dilma. After Dilma was removed by impeachment, kind of this ties into his sort of military background, uh, Brazil was re-democratized in, in 1988. Since then, all directly elected presidents, with the exception of one, up until that time, had been persecuted during the military dictatorship. So the sort of center-right Brazil's the name is Social uh, Democracy Party, which is a sort of center center right party he was fernando cardozo 
he was he was a sociology professor at the university at the time. He was ousted by the the dictatorship. Uh, Rousseff was also persecuted by the dictatorship, and she was tortured by the dictatorship. Lula was also arrested. So those were the presidents up until that point. Now, when Bolsonaro went to, to on the floor of the lower house to vote on Dilma's impeachment, to, to impeach, to oust her, while he was voting and speaking on the floor of the house, he made an homage to Dilma's torturer. He literally said, you know, I am, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines with, this is in name of Brilhantiustra, which was the name of Dilma's torture. And he said, Dilma's nightmare. And then he voted to oust her. She was eventually ousted by the lower house. So this is sort of the ideological backdrop that Bolsonaro had and kind of that explains his sort of personality, if you will. At the time, Bolsonaro was, again, backbencher, small party, nothing really important. No one gave him a big chance. And everyone thought that it was either going to be Lula who would win, uh, most likely Lula, who was leading at the polls at the time, uh, sort of early uh, 2016, or it might maybe could be one of the sort of leaders of the opposition, leader of this centre-right party that was Geraldo Alckmin at the time. And he had this sort of broad coalition in his side and so on. What ended up happening uh, was basically two big, big events. One was there was a major, there had been and continued to be a major economic crisis in the country since that that was actually what led to, to Rousseff's ousting. And that economic crisis coupled with a corruption scandal, which, again, we could speak an hour about the corruption scandal by itself, that was the context that created a major political crisis. Now, I literally wrote a chapter on this. The Brazilian judiciary was faced with a, with a very strong dilemma at the time. And basically, they, you know, I can, I can say, can I, can, I, can I swear? Yeah. Um, they voted to to save their own asses, and what they did That's was not really swearing. You'll have to try. <laughs> well, what what they did was they basically, rather than sort of taking taking, they, they kind of tried to surf that wave, and they did two things. One is that they jailed Lula in a procedure that was later annulled, and they stopped him from running. I mean, the, the final decision was, I mean, really close to that election. But, you know, think about six months before the election. Imagine that there is a fixed election cycle. So there's this big expectation. Lula is the major leader in the polls. He could have won in the first round. Uh, we have a two, two rounds. If you make fit over uh, 50% of the vote, you can win outright in the first round. He could have won in the first round. And boom, he's jailed. He's jailed by Judge Morrow, who later becomes... Bolsonaro's justice minister. So he's later appointed to that. Now, a year or two later, a hacker actually uncovered conversations between this judge, Moro, and the lead prosecutors of Lula. They were basically in collusion to, to arrest Lula at the time. Uh, I won't get into the further details. That was discovered by The Intercept and Glenn Greenwald at the time. Uh, so that was uncovered by them. That was reported on. Eventually, 
Lula's convictions were quashed. But that was sort of the backdrop that led Bolsonaro to power. So there's a corruption scandal, corruption operation that puts Lula in jail. And there's also an economic crisis. And the timing of those two things leads to also a major rejection of the Workers' Party. So after Lula's put in jail, he nominates or the party nominates a sort of a successor to him. That was Fernando Haddad. He runs, he goes to the second round with Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro wins the election. Since that moment, Bolsonaro starts attacking the electoral process. Well, since even before that, Brazil has a digital electoral system. There are digital polls. There are machines. And you don't print the... the, the there's, no, there's no ballot per se. So what it is, more like a calculator, if you will, every candidate has a number. So every party has its number. So, for instance, the Workers' Party is 13. So you go up to the poll. You can take a list with all the number of your, your candidates if you, if you want. You just go in there and you press press the number and you click the green button and, you know, life goes on and you vote. Uh, Bolsonaro started from that, from even before that, trying to kind of attack that system. That system has been placed basically almost since democratization. Since 94, I believe, was one of the first elections that the entire country voted through that system. It's, it has multiple security measures. Political parties are open to sort of doing, they do hackathons to try to hack the machines. They do all these you know, different types of procedure. But since that moment, Bolsonaro started started attacking, and his big claim was, well, yes, I won, but I, I would have won in the first round. So this is sort of the thing that is going to return later. And just tying it to your research, I mean, certainly I've been reading stuff about pretty outrageous claims that were being made on social media about, you know, things like um, mothers being given children's milk bottles with teats in the shape of penises to try to spread homosexuality and just this I mean, quite a putting apart the kind of the wrongness of uh, of the kind of homophobic element but just the outrageousness of the lies uh so was that any part of it is that something you picked up at all or am i have i been no, no. myself deceived or misled one of the important things is sort of the backdrop, and a bit of to, to to Australian audience. Why should you care about this? The first thing is, first of all, and this is a mistake that I'll tell you know a lot of people have slept on it, including myself at the time. After 2016, everyone was concerned with Facebook and Twitter. Now, Brazil, unlike the United States, and you know most research—it's not all, but most research. Uh, on social media is financed or conducted in the United States. There are some other countries, especially England, Australia. But, you know, there's a lot of focus there. The two most important platforms at the time were Twitter and Facebook. So everyone was talking about Twitter and Facebook. The big social media, and at the time I didn't even consider it social media per se, was WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. WhatsApp was the main vehicle for spreading disinformation during that Brazilian election. And one of the major ones was exactly that, was the idea that um, people were being distributed, you know, uh, formula bottles, right, uh, for children with penises on the sort of mouthpiece. Mind you, this leads me one one of my, my major arguments um, about social media and about disinformation. 
And we'll get on the fake news thing a bit later because I think there's an important distinction. But I'm sorry to tell this to, to a lot of journalists, but from my experience and from my research and looking at the Brazilian elections is, is one of the major things uh, that, you, that you draw from it is you can't fact check your way out of this because it's not about that particular lie, but it's about the broader message that is being sent. Now, the reason why that particular lie, that particular political lie, which is, you know, the Workers' Party government, the leftist government is doing this, was because there was already a discourse, there was already sort of a political version that the left is trying to promote what they call gender ideology. So they are attacking our children with LGBTQ rhetoric, which is endangering them. And their main goal, their main concern is transforming or making them sort of open to or susceptible to pedophiles. That is the message that particular piece of disinformation is sending. What you do from that broader message, from that generic view that this is what they're doing, is you generate a hundred different fake stories that convey different details, different events, but they all convey that same broad message. And because you can't fact check a hundred different stories, and it's not even important because you're fact-checking, obviously, after the fact, the broader message is still conveyed, which is, look at what they're doing to your children. They're doing something wrong to your children because of their dangerous ideology. That is the message that is being sent. So it's a bit like sort of a cat-and-mouse game if you're trying to kind of, or, or, or whack-a-mole, if you will, if you're trying to bang on all of these different stories. You'll never get there because the point is not getting people to believe in that particular story, but it's about conveying that broader point. And every time you generate that fake story, that kind of what I call junk news, which is different from something being fake, you can even use something that is true to do the same thing. And the concept of junk news is better because we talk about junk food, right? And junk is, you know, I'm not, I'm not a dietitian or a nutritionist, but it's about a meal that it doesn't, it's empty calories, right? So it doesn't really uh, present, you know, it doesn't give you the proteins, the carbs, the, the fat and so on that you need. That is what junk news is. It is information that has no, or it is a message that doesn't seek to inform. It has no inf actual informational value to it. But the point of it is about conveying a particular political message and you're disregarding facts or opinion or so on in, 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 in an attempt to do so. So, yes, that absolutely was, was one, of the, one of the vehicles. Yeah, and it seems like it's a something that politics is drawn to around the world. I mean, uh, there's always been a history of of lies or, or rhetoric that stokes fear of families and, you know, you know what's going to happen to the kids or 
to our wives or whatever it might be, you know, in the, in history. And it stokes this this fear and this tension that's in the air. And and I'm just wondering, I know because I know that it's been stoked by Trump and, and the Republicans in the US, um, even in Australia, I know that after the Victorian election which just occurred, you threw on Sky News after dark and they were saying, oh, you know, watch out all your kids, there's going to be gender transformations and all. It's like... What is going on and who's – why do they think that that is even it's, – it's obviously not true but also who's listening to that? And, I mean, Victorian election proved that not many people are but – Well, not it, many people here. But, but, but around the world it obviously can work and it has worked anywhere in the world. So what was sort of the – well, maybe another thing to touch on is that Brazil seemed to have got the economic crisis, a bit of a political crisis – what were the, the circumstances or the tensions going on that allowed people to actually be captivated and taken in by these ridiculous lies? Because I'm sure, as we all know, that Brazilians, like everybody else in the world, they're, uh, they can be taken, you know, like America has been or Australia or anywhere, has or the UK anywhere, has been taken by populist movements. But there are people that are extraordinarily smart, understand what can happen, in a dictatorship or out of democracies, you know, there's this intellect there that exists. So how was enough of the population captivated and taken in by this this false messaging? First, I, I want to say that social media doesn't explain everything. I think there's a political explanation, and I'll, and I'll get to that uh, in a second. But remember when I mentioned that social media does not eliminate hierarchies, but it creates different ones. So I'll take the impeachment, the, the coup against Dilma uh, for a second. The reason why Dilma was ousted, and this is what my research on social media uh, led to, at the time, the way that most people interacted, mind you, this is Brazil. So this is a country where people started, people were already online, but people mainly were online, interacted on social media through their cell phones, and through data plans. And those data plans and those cell phones were mostly because mobile data was so expensive in Brazil. What social media companies did was they actually sponsored a lot of data programs that limited people's access to the internet only on social media. So you'd pay Telstra, Optus, Vodafone, whatever, and pay an amount a month for your voice plan. You had no data because you couldn't afford it, but you could still use WhatsApp. You could still use Facebook. You could still, uh, Twitter not so much because they didn't have so much money uh, to do that because Facebook and, and WhatsApp actually paid the these telecom companies so that people could access. That creates a challenge though because what ended up happening was people when they read news stories, they couldn't actually read the news because the combination of, A, not having access to data plans, and B, paywalls, that was the sort of the, cre- the, the big jump in paywalls in, in, in news sources, that led to only people being able to read the headlines or texts that people used to talk about those stories on social media. That really led people to believe at the time that what Dilma was being accused of in her impeachment, she was being accused of crimes in her impeachment, that those particular crimes, and I won't bore you with the details, but there was, you know, budgetary technicalities, 
they felt that those accusations against Dilma were, A, of corruption, which wasn't the case, and B, that those actions, those crimes that she was being accused with had something to do with the economic crisis, which it didn't. So that made those connections. So if you actually ask most people who were consuming news online and through social media, they would tell you those two things. Well, she was ousted for corruption and for the economic crisis. That was what gave popular support to the ousting. But the crimes she was being accused of, she was actually innocent of them, and it had nothing to do with, with either of, of those cases. So that's sort of the first part. That's what kind of shows you how social media and in the internet can create those hierarchies with people that didn't have enough money to pay for these data plans. They're being misled by this information. But then there's a the second part, which is unlike, and this is what sets Bolsonaro apart from Trump or from a lot of the, the rest of the far right. A lot of the far right movements, whether it's in Europe or the US, most supporters are, they talk, you know, the downtrodden working class, right? After deindustrialization, these people had great jobs, or, you know, these people were workers, blue-collar workers, now they're jobless because all most jobs went to China, so on and so forth. And whether it's the sort of centre-right or centre-left neoliberals never actually could point to the economy they created and say, this is awful, we need to do something about it. And then the far right started speaking to those people. And then they also surfed on all the, all the trends that have everything to do with Brazil. Now, Brazil doesn't really follow that trend. First of all, because, and, and if you actually look at who are the supporters of Bolsonaro, it isn't poor people. The working class or the poorer Brazilians, those that earn between minimum wage or twice the minimum wage, overwhelmingly voted for Lula this election. The people who didn't vote for Lula or the people who supported Bolsonaro are sort of the classes immediately on top of that, immediately above that. And to understand why that happened, you need to understand that Brazil is one of the most, the countries with the largest degrees of inequality in the world. Now, there's an expression which is a bit of a colonial expression, but I think it's useful to, to, to describe it, which was sort of coined during the military dictatorship, which was Belindia, which was you know, a small part of the population lives like the royal families in Europe or the richest, wealthiest people in Belgium. That's why the bell part. And the poorest people have the same sort of degree of access to public services or san basic sanitation and so on as the poorest of villages in India. That was the sort of the comparison. Now, what that kind of massive structural inequality led to was that the professional managerial class, which is not the wealthiest people in the country, but rather, you know, the starting middle managers, small-scale professionals and so on, those people had access to an immense level of services, basically manned by sort of quasi-modern-day slave labor because the minimum wage was so low that they could afford. So you could be a, you know, a lawyer right out of law school and you could afford to have a servant 
in in your house you could have a, a maid or a nanny or you know to the point and you in this sort of this is replicated or this impacts the whole of brazilian society to the point where you'd see for instance something that you don't see in australia but most sort of middle class apartments or flats in brazilian urban cities have a servants quarter which is a very small bedroom a very small bath right next to the kitchen so most apartments if you go even today in brazil you can go and in and it's something quite unusual if you you know if you see it uh those would be sort of living employees of the family uh and this was supported by a very small sort of very low minimum wage that changed or started to change circa 2003 especially at the beginning of the Lula's government after there was sort of a stabilization of of uh, ripe inflation which Brazil had in the 70s and 80s in the start of the 2000s the Lula government started to sort of add on to or, or increase the minimum wage and the first people impacted were these kind of people these sort of lower middle class or medium middle class people who had access to all these services because then they were so cheap they all of a sudden suffered immensely because they didn't have access to those services anymore they became too expensive for them now the wealthier elites they were still fine because you know they still make a lot of money but that parcel of people you know small town doctors small even some you know nurses or middle managers those people had access to all of this they stopped having access to it you know some public servants they stopped having access to those kinds of services that generated an immense an immense opposition to the workers party government because they felt left behind those people felt that their own privileges were being sort of attacked and they saw all these sort of lower classes that even if they you know suffered a very small increase in their own well-being in their own wages they weren't manning those jobs anymore they weren't taking those jobs anymore or they became much more expensive for these people so that created this kind of movement and in a way bolsonaro kind of well he is exactly that he sort of he's not a general which earns a lot more money he's a retired army captain so he's exactly in that kind of uh, wage level initially obviously he's a, a member of, of of congress so he earns much more now but you know he he's from exactly that that um sort of class and there and were sort of landowning sort of farmers and and people involved in this movement as well i know that from what i've heard that there was a big agricultural sort of sector that supported bolsonaro Yes, but that is sort of um that is another sort of unique part of Bolsonaro, but that is more credited to his deregulation efforts. So what we need to remember is that even if all of these sort of you know Trump and a lot of these economic populists sort of pose themselves as protectionists or so on, uh that is not the case of Bolsonaro. So Bolsonaro actually employed in his economic ministry an extreme small L liberal uh in his it's a Chicago boy he worked in Chile during the Pinochet dictatorship he was a he was a student of Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago that was his economy ministry uh minister and in his agenda is deregulating 
anything and everything that he could put his hands on. Now, that also generated a lot of support for, again, not the small farmers, not the major farmers who actually do a lot of exporting and damage the image of Brazil, but it's sort of this middle, right? These farmers who are quite wealthy in a way, they have large properties, uh, they have lots of equipment, they have, you know, fancy car, imported cars and so on, but these are not billionaires by any, by any stretch. They are sort of, you know, Brazilian millionaires, they're really well off, but they're not sort of at, at the top of the scale, nor they are sort of family farmers. So yes, there was a big, that was a, a major support because these are, these farmers make up kind of the same class that I was talking about as well. But there is also his efforts in deregulation and sort of pro-deforestation or pro-economic development of rural areas kind of message is also up their alley, if you will. On the subject of up people's alleys, I mean, it's fascinating to hear you describe all this, Alex, and thank you very much. It's, it's uh, this real insight to what you're sharing but there's also i can hear a degree of passion and, and commitment in, in all of this and so obviously on the immediate horizon is is the phd and, and finalizing that but where does this lead for you where where, where, where you where do you take this blend of academia but also a little bit of active activism yourself on a personal level i went to spain to do my master's degree and it was an international program. And the first thing that I felt when I went there, when I arrived, this was at the time of the coup against Dilma, was that immediately when you are when you are a migrant, when you're an immigrant, and this is especially occurs in academia because obviously you have that interest, in a way you become the representative of your home country. You become sort of the lens that people will see your country through. You making this invitation for me, and I thank you a lot for this, is, is sort of, you know, it, it shows that, right? So for me, first, after finishing my PhD, hopefully, if anyone's listening to this, uh, I'll get a job here. Uh, a part, of, a part of, of, of being here, part of being an immigrant is being subjected to, to immigration laws. Even though my partner has a full-time job here, her actual job isn't on the sort of desired, needed professions in Australia, but university lecturer is. So that is sort of my, my, first, my first path. And, and in my academic work and in my activism, um, I kind of try to marry those two things. This is why my thesis is on social movements. This is why I've written a, a book chapter on sort of the, the way that Brazilian, Brazilian legal elites kind of helped prop up Bolsonaro and led to him putting himself in power. And this is why I sometimes write for Brazil Wire, which is a way of, you know, giving people insight of what is happening in Brazil and producing content uh, in English, which is when you're talking about um, uh, Latin America, there's a lot of stuff written in Portuguese and Spanish. There's a lot of great people writing in English as well, but it's a smaller contingency. This is a smaller world, right? So in trying to translate, and why should we care? Obviously, every, uh, most people are concerned with deforestation in the Amazon. That's one of the major issues. And I think that being abroad and, and, and giving, showing people that perspective um, and, and being able to inform people, that is something that I'm passionate about, whether it's 
talking to people on a podcast, whether it's, you know, on Twitter, uh, engaging with people, uh, you know, like like to have coffees as much as anyone and, and, and chat about these things, uh, whether it's, it's teaching classes on, on the subject or, or, you know, related things as well. Thanks, Alex. Uh, before we ask our final question um, for the evening, I just wanted to touch on a few things that you, you talked about and, and or a lesson that I've learned from what you've discussed, which is that we have to be really careful with our democracies and our forms of government and, and what we believe. And, and, and from everything you've talked about, it all sort of, it seems from the outside to be like Bolsonaro and the horrible things he's doing, but there, there, there is an angst going on in the world at the moment and, and a, a bit of concern from all, you know, populations everywhere, whether that's, it's often considered the downtrodden or the, you know, but, but I actually think all over the world it's that middle class that once felt whether not powerful but they had some status in the world and that's sort of been taken away in their own minds because of the lifting up of others. And it seems like it's the same story almost again. And the people that harness this and the people that are saying that the the elites are the problem and all of this stuff, but then like Bolsonaro or, or Boris Johnson or Trump or Scott Morrison or any one of these, they're not the answer or the, the antidote to the elite being corrupt, if, if that's that's true. It would have to be from, from somewhere else, but it seems like it constantly goes to this sort of far-right answer to to these potentially legitimate concerns from some people, not the milk bottles or whatever it was. It's definitely not a legitimate concern. I mean, if it was true, maybe, but I don't think it's true at all. And um, even if it was... Back on track, man. Back on track. <laughs> the home of... Anyway, it's just crazy. But... Um, well, the boat's coming, right? Yeah, this is the... that's right. Boats, um, people taking your jobs, all these different things are there. So my, my final, I, I guess, sort of... Uh, reflection on what you've discussed is how important it is for us to all keep an eye on what's going on around the world because it's not only important for what's going on there and the people wherever that may be whether it's Hungary whether it's uh, Iran or whether it's Brazil or anywhere but also for what is around the corner in Australia even you know with a, a dominant monopoly media and and people like you talked about the buffoon that goes on TV and talks about all this hateful stuff I think of Pauline Hanson or someone that's often invited onto the stage to talk. So it's really insightful to see that this is not unique to one particular part of the world but an, a problem that we need to sort of join forces in a way to to understand what's coming next. This has happened here. It could be something that happens in, in my backyard too. So really important to focus on. So anyway, that's that's something I've taken from this, Alex, and thank you for all your sharing. Before we finish the podcast though... We always ask a question to to finish off, which is, have you had a moment of clarity that you'd like to share with us today that helps to capture, I guess, in essence, what you're doing and what you plan to do going into the future as well? Yes, and I think to carry from from what you brought into the conversation, which which I agree, I think I think our major role now is to is of providing alternatives whether it's alternatives to sort of regulating and understanding a better way of dealing with social media and misinformation. But I think it's about, and this is the role of academics as well, 
especially uh, academics, I think, is about kind of climbing down from, from our rifle towers, if you will. That is one thing that sort of attracted me to, to Australia and to UNSW in particular. Uh, we speak a lot about black-letter lawyers or, you know, black-letter solicitors, barristers, and kind of being too much in our own minds. I think the moment is to abandon what has both academically and politically has been sort of the mainstream since the 90s, really, since the since the, the fall of, of the Berlin Wall, the Soviet Union, which is sort of the, this politics of the end of history, this idea that there are no more political issues, there are no more sort of real political debates to be had. What we need is just technical answers to the problems. Well, we've gone through that, and we've seen that liberal democracy just didn't win in its end of history, which is Fukuyama's, was Fukuyama's uh, argument then. It is a process. And this idea that there's no more political debate led us to the far right in the entire world being actually the only political formation that, one, presents solutions but even more especially presents a diagnosis that is fundamentally incorrect, that presents a diagnosis that the issues or the elites that creates these issues are cultural ones. And what we need to understand and what we need to fixate in particular is it is not the cultural elites, there's no such thing as a cultural elite. There are cultures, but the actual elites that have all the power, these are not sort of orchestrated or mediated by culture, but rather by economic power. Now, when we see the far right basically allying themselves with much of the same, the technocratic center-right, what we're seeing is a, a game of hide the ball. They speak of cultural elites as a way of focusing on those particular sort of urban trends and urban cultures to kind of get the regional votes, get the regional power to them. But what they're actually effectively promoting is an economic agenda that is what has led to the same issues, that it was has led to the same problems in societal deregulations and issues, whether it is on social media or, you know, just a couple companies concentrating an immense amount of power. So I think our goal is to focus on those messages and understanding. If there is one particular movement, if there is one particular effort that we could make, I think is one of the key ways that we can help effectively democratise is collective action, whether it's engaging on social movements led by culture, led by your interests, and fundamentally led by your workplace. That means your trade unions. Now, you might have some issues or some historical differences with trade unions in general, with your particular trade union, but that is the fundamental place we spend most of our life at work. That is the fundamental place where you can start to create that momentum, create and promote that more moments of clarity to kind of change that balance of power and really effectively tackle those issues as opposed to being concerned with, with the things that you're being led to. Wow. 
it's been a fascinating conversation, Alex. Really, really appreciate it. And I think it's going to be one of the interviews that we've run where I think it sits with us quite a while. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot for us to reflect on and hopefully for, for the audience as well. But for now, thank you very, very much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, The biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast, via our website moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.